Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. We've got a great show this week. We thought we would dive into a series of announcements and news coming out of Microsoft. We'd hear about what Google and Amazon are doing with respect to phone calls. And we'll take a look at uh, Facebook reinventing Facebook as it were. Uh, but first, from Microsoft, we saw that uh, the Surface Duo reviews are out. Ross, I know you've got one. You've uh, been holding it up here in our, uh, in our video chat. What are some of your uh, early thoughts from using the Surface Duo? Well, you know, Microsoft has been a, a little reluctant to call this thing a phone. And uh, if you get some hands-on time with it, it's um, you start to understand that a little bit better. Uh, of course, it can be used as a phone. Uh, you know, you can hold it up to your, your ear and that works just fine. Uh, but it is really not optimized uh, for use as a phone. Uh, it's really optimized for use as a productivity device. Uh, and so, in fact, just the foundational idea of having access to two displays uh, is something that comes out of years of research in the PC market. Uh, people have, you know, uh, it's been shown in studies for years that people tend to be more productive with uh, two monitors connected to their, uh, to their computers. Uh, something we've gotten away from in, in the age of laptops and smartphones. So this is uh, an attempt to bring that back. Uh, and uh, not only are there two screens, uh, but they are significantly wider uh, than we typically see. Each one is wider uh, than what we typically see on a, on a modern smartphone, uh, which is optimized again for that one handed uh, experience. Um, so trying to maximize screen real estate while uh, while keeping it uh, easily grippable in one hand. Uh, the other interesting thing about the Duo is that it is uh, not perhaps just a reference to the, to the number of screens, but also the bringing together of the best of Microsoft and the best of, uh, of Google uh, in Android, or as Microsoft is saying, the Microsoft you love, the Android you know. Uh, I wonder if Google would reverse those descriptors if it were talking about the product. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, strange as it all may seem, uh, it, it actually comes together pretty well. Uh, and uh, the, the foundational benefit, I would say the key benefit, uh, is just being able very simply uh, to have two apps up at the same time, side by side, uh, each having access to a nice uh, amount of screen real estate and being able to just visually reference data from each of them, uh, common scenario, wanting your calendar and your email up at the same time or a Zoom call and a, something to take notes with. Uh, so that all works great. Now, from there, there's, there's a lot more you can do. Uh, Microsoft uh, in its own apps is trying to work to do this uh, spanning functionality uh, where one app takes up both screens and you divide the interface uh, so that it's logical. So for example, in say Outlook, you would have your message list on the left and your message content on the right. Uh, they've done this for Teams. They've done this for, 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 one, uh, for, um, for OneNote uh, and, and several of their other apps. <clears throat> and that's, that's interesting. Uh, but I uh, so far have found it a, a bit less compelling. 
Uh, and uh, probably the coolest example of it has been how Amazon has optimized the Kindle app uh, so that you have a page on each screen and you can flip through it uh, really like a book. But, but even this idea of kind of just like holding it like a book, uh, uh, gripping it in your hands really uh, has kind of, I think, a more intimate uh, feel to it uh, than just, just working with a, uh, with a one screen smartphone that's just kind of out there. Uh, I, I think that, you know, uh, it's, it's just a little bit difficult to often logically come up with uh, the, the best use for two screens on one app. And that's where I think some of the folding displays uh, have, have an advantage. And perhaps we'll see Microsoft migrate to those uh, over time. Uh, for now, they have a, a price advantage versus the Galaxy Fold 2. Uh, which is $2,000. The Surface Duo is $1,400. Uh, uh, but that's still priced above, you know, the, the top of the line from Apple and, and the Galaxy Note uh, and other mainstream <clears throat> handsets. Uh, and, uh, 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 and with that said, you know, it lacks certain things you would expect uh, in, in a handset at that price point, like 5G, uh, or a multi-lens camera. So, so as I said, I've, I've liked it a lot. I've liked the experience of using it. Uh, I buy into the paradigm, uh, at least for many app scenarios. Uh, I don't use a lot of Microsoft apps on my phone. Um, and even given that, I've, I've really enjoyed the experience. So, uh, so it's an interesting uh, new direction. Um, you know, clearly we're, uh, it's an early adopter product as are the, folding phones at this point. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's some there there. Yeah, it seems like it really has some promise around a productivity device and, and enhancing productivity. So it makes sense that Microsoft uh, is is focused there and how they could make this mobile experience more productive and, be, and being able to have uh, two pieces of information in front of you, I think makes a lot of sense. Like you said, a Zoom call and a calendar or note taking and, and some other things. And so it seems like it's trying to bring some, some additional productivity to this particular space. And, and of course, with COVID, this particular space around the, the, what the definition of mobility is, is, is really, uh, I think, in question. I mean, I could imagine a device like this being really useful if you were having a meeting with somebody at a coffee shop. Well, we don't really do sure. that in 2020, right? You're not, <laughs> right. not doing that today. And so, um, but I could see that being, uh, being useful. It, it's interesting to me because I think one of the things that the, the iPhone taught us about smartphones was that actually removing some of the functionality, some of the seemingly functionality actually made the devices more useful, more productive. So, uh, you know, when we, when we were all using Blackberries and we swore by having a keyboard and, and we were convinced right. that having the keyboard was what made us productive on those devices, uh, Apple introduced us to another way that said, you know, it's not really the keyboard that's making you productive. It's these other things that we can deliver in a more seamless fashion. And, and uh, you know, with the Duo, it feels to me like Microsoft is saying, here's some, some new functionality we're going to give you to improve your productivity. And it will be, uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if that really does come to fruition or if it is a, uh, you know, a solution in search of a, 
of a problem. Um, and we'll, we'll see what that, uh, you know, what that looks like. I well, think, I think it, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, at least uh, on, in one respect, uh, you know, to your point, uh, it's on trend, right? right? One of the reasons why typing became on a screen became easier. And one of the huge trends we've seen in the smartphone market over the past decade is the screens getting bigger, right? So, so both this and the folding phones are trying to deal with the idea of how do we maximize screen real estate while still keeping it something you can hold in your hand. And, and in terms of the typing experience, I think it's also interesting you should bring that up because uh, while it has been uh, kind of an enjoyable discovery process, uh, it also may be a challenge in terms of trying to present this product at retail. But one of the really nice usage scenarios is holding it uh, in a more portrait orientation um, and, and having a full screen of Microsoft Word or, or Google Docs up on that top screen while thumb typing uh, a full screen keyboard on, on the bottom screen. It's, it's probably one of the, you know, maybe the best uh, software typing experience I've had uh, on a mobile device. Uh, but it, again, it's not something that would immediately jump out at you. Yeah. In other Microsoft news, we also saw that they are uh, rumored to be bringing out a mid-range Surface clamshell PC with a 12 and a half inch display. The code name for that right now is Sparty. The rumored <laughs> price point is uh, $500 to $600. So it, it brings the uh, price point of that Surface PC down uh, significantly and puts it right in the midst of many of its uh, partners, of course. So that will uh, open up as many questions as it, as it answers. Um, it's, it's interesting to see how they are changing uh, what, what the Surface brand is or what it was originally intended to be. Uh, Ross, what are your thoughts on uh, the, 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 new, the new rumored announcements of this mid-range Surface clamshell PC? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, a lot of the Surface devices uh, up to this point have been kind of experimental, playing with shifting form factors, uh, early adopter products in some ways, certainly premium devices. And a lot of them uh, have been at that 999 price point. I think that's where the current Surface laptop uh, lives uh, and, and up from there, really trying to go head to head uh, with Apple. Uh, and of course, you know, we talked about just talked about this Surface Duo at a, at a high price point. So that is uh, very much in keeping with how Microsoft has entered these categories. Uh, but to go down to like a 599 price point, uh, that is really, uh, as you well know, Sean, the kind of the sweet spot of the Windows uh, PC market. Uh, timing could be very interesting in terms of, quote, back to school uh, to the extent that uh, students are going back anywhere, but, uh, uh, but that's historically what this time of year has been about. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's not, you know, kind of a Chromebook killer. It's not that, that inexpensive, you know, $300 product. Uh, it's right in the middle. It's, it's right in the heart of the market. Uh, I think Microsoft has done a good job building its reputation as a PC maker over the past few years. So now is a good time to, to try to attack that. Um, and, you know, maybe fortunately for them, it's been a good time for PC sales. So uh, they may be minimizing the, 
uh, eyebrow raising among their their partners as they uh, get more aggressive on price point. It's been a phenomenal time for PC sales and really for a, a wide swath of electronics. If you've seen any of the numbers that have, have come out of NPD uh, reporting sales, anything around working from home or taking you know virtual classes from home have all done mm-hmm. very well. It was my anticipation that um, we would see less spending on apparel this back to school season and more spending on, on electronics. And that will probably carry into the, to the holiday season. There's just a, a, a very strong appetite for, uh, for laptops, not just from those who are working from home, but also from school districts and from families that are, are looking to add uh, devices to, to the mix. So I think, I think your observation there, Ross, is, is spot on that uh, any impact to partners will be really hard to decipher because uh, there's mm-hmm. just been so much strength there. Arguably, it's been um, hard to get certain products uh, with early supply chain disruptions and then just large spikes in demand. So uh, it, it could do well early on, even if it isn't uh, a device that will remain popular over the long term, it could do early on just because the the appetite for laptops right now is so strong. I think it also speaks to Microsoft's uh, fleshing out its product line, yeah. right? So this is uh, there. It, it signals that they're willing to take more of a chance in the, in the mid market and the low end of the market. Uh, they just recently, a few months ago, updated their Surface Go. Uh, which is the least expensive surface starting at about $400. Uh, that was a, a, a price point uh, that they had really struggled with in the past. And it seems like they're, they're finally making some headway there. And this will sit right between that surface, uh, you know, go and the, the surface pro and kind of finds a, a sweet spot there. So to your point, it does start to expand that, uh, you know, that price continuum. Do you think, uh, if they're successful at this price point, that we'll see them try to uh, compete with the the Chromebooks of the world and try to get to a, an even lower price point. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a funny uh, situation because I remember a few years ago when they first introduced the Surface laptop, they did it at this education event where you know they introduced this thousand dollar laptop uh, for you know un- undergrads and and faculty and staff and. You know, for the K-12 crowd, you know, here, here was a bunch of low-priced stuff from from partners. Uh, you know, plasticky, low low-priced uh, Windows laptops uh, under three hundred dollars. Uh, you, you know, you go to those guys for for the stuff with no margin. Uh, we're we're happy we're happy to have you do that. Uh, so yeah, they're uh, they're certainly um, starting to get more aggressive there. I I mean, it could happen, but my sense is that. You know, there have been rumors for some time that they're trying to take a different approach at the uh, at the education market at, at that price point. And I think it may be something like um, uh, picture, if you will, an edge book, right? Uh, something like a Chromebook uh, that uses some sort of slimmed down version of Windows uh, and uh, and uses the edge browser as sort of the uh, main, maybe not exclusive, but but main engine of uh, of, of app activity. Uh, you know, they have been working with Google actually 
on trying to bring more progressive web apps to the platform, which look and feel more like native apps. Uh, and uh, it just allows them to get more performance with a less expensive machine. Uh, and of course, that's been a, uh, that's been a, um, a formula that's been super successful for Google in the education market with Chromebook. Well, and I think the education market has taken a significant shift in, in 2020 because of COVID and because of so many school districts starting virtual and, and potentially continuing to be virtual for the remainder of the year, where uh, in, in the past they might have been buying laptops to use in the classroom. They're now buying laptops to send home to, to students. I think if, you, if you're a school district that's using something like Teams, then a surface laptop probably makes a lot of sense. Presumably the, the integration there will be, will be clean and seamless. Uh, you know, the, the education market has changed a lot in, in recent years and especially because of COVID where it used to be families buying laptops for their, uh, for their children or, or for their family, buying desktops for their family and for home use. Now they're buying a laptop for every child if the school district isn't providing them because they all have, virtual classes that they need to, to log into. Sure. Uh, so it's important to have individual devices. So there's, there, you know, there's a lot of shift happening there and school districts are becoming much bigger players in that market moving forward. So it'll be interesting to see hmm. how the PC manufacturers respond to, to some of those demands. And uh, we have another story about Microsoft getting very aggressive on price. Uh, uh, with their Xbox console, they are going head to head with Sony uh, for the next generation of home video game consoles this uh, holiday season. And uh, Sean, as you noted, there seems to have been an incredible appetite for all kinds of entertainment electronics uh, in the home. Uh, and yet uh, this has been a, um, a marketplace where where pricing uh, has been incredibly strategic for the console. Uh, Microsoft got burned uh, quite a few, a couple of years ago when Sony uh, beat them on price with the, uh, the PlayStation, uh, uh, PlayStation 4, I believe. Uh, and so uh, now Microsoft is uh, surprised uh, a lot of folks by debuting the Xbox Series X as a premium product for $499, uh, which is in keeping with that traditional high-end uh, next-generation console price, but, but surprised many people by also coming out with the Xbox Series S at $299. So this is, a, of course, a significant price difference with the top end and uh, a lot of speculation about how vulnerable Sony looks because uh, there is uh, assumed to be uh, a, a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, bill of uh, very high bill of materials to the to the PlayStation Five, uh, and now there's a, a big open question about how effectively they'll be able to compete, uh, particularly against that low price. So, so Sean, what what do you think about Sony's uh, about Microsoft's move here, and what do you think are some options that Sony may have? Well, I think it's really interesting because because we have seen this move from Microsoft, but never at launch. We see them come mm -hmm. out with different iterations of the console later in the life cycle when they're trying to attract, uh, you know, your your marginal buyer, somebody who might right. have a PlayStation you know, but doesn't have fairly the fairly standard fairly standard practice right. in the industry. We've seen other guys do that too. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, but but typically you're launching that premium model early on, and you're you're trying to capture that uh, premium market early, and try and trying to convince buyers to buy up to that premium market if they want early access to the new console. Uh, and it looks like what Microsoft's going to do here is launch both the X and the Series S, both in times for holiday. So they'll have two price points. One obviously very attractive, uh, has great specs. Looks like it will uh, far outperform the, uh, the the Xbox One, which is currently in the market. And so you've got uh, a, a really good option at two ninety nine. You've got it you know, a premium option at 499. I think it makes Microsoft extremely competitive headed into the, the holiday season. Uh, so I think it will be um, a, a very difficult uh, market for, for PlayStation to compete in early on, but there, you know, any more in that game market, it does feel like you're either a, a PlayStation uh, user or, or, a, or an Xbox user to some extent. So that may minimize some of that uh, some of that challenge. It, it probably does. It probably does drive people into that Xbox market at that low price point. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think now is kind of an interesting generation to do it. Uh, you know, historically, I think Nintendo has uh, taken the tack of let's keep the console price relatively low, um, not not subsidize it per se. Uh, but, you know, not go guns a-blazing into packing all the latest technology we, uh, we can uh, into a box. And, you know, we focus on selling the software. And in Nintendo's case, the strength of the characters and franchises they have uh, built loyalty to uh, over, over a course of decades. Um, but one uh, interesting thing about this generation of consoles is that uh, we're, we're really starting to see the uh, the discless uh, not the, the 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 version without an optical disc uh, right. becoming more of an option and that's certainly one of the options on the Xbox Series S uh, I think Sony has already announced that they're going to have a variation without uh, an optical drive uh, and so what that allows is for you to essentially monopolize the software sales so you can make more profit uh, on the software. Uh, than you would having to go through a through a distributor um, uh, or, or retailer like uh, like GameStop. So um, so that's maybe one reason why they can be more aggressive uh, in in this generation. Uh, Xbox, uh, of course, historically has been number two uh, in in the U.S. market. So uh, so yeah, I agree. This is this is definitely a play to try to steal uh, steal some share uh, and. Um, it seems attractive. I, uh, I I think it may take Sony some time to to answer that uh, that product, and maybe in the short term, uh, they they have to take more of a hit on the hardware uh, of the full fledged PlayStation Five uh, than than they had expected. So yeah, and I would I would expect some pretty robust uh, bundles in response to this. So one way to mm. combat this would be to come out with. Hardware plus plus software, new new game uh, releases to help drive some of that sure. pickup. But I think you bring up a really valid point that uh, this does push Microsoft more to a kind of an Apple App Store esque model. Uh, you know where they're they're selling the hardware at at 
cost or below cost even subsidizing it in order to get more people on the software platform and, and then driving sales through uh, through that channel. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. We did see uh, this news uh, this week as well that Nintendo Switch is upping production 20% because of increased demand. Uh, probably a byproduct of, of COVID-19 is more kids are staying home. They're, they're gaming more and so they're looking for individual devices that aren't shared across the household. Uh, picking up, it'll be interesting to see uh, if Microsoft or, or you know, Sony is, has played in that, that uh, area a little bit, but we haven't really seen Microsoft do much as far as uh, uh, handhold, handheld game consoles go and, um, you know, at least for many, many years. So it'd be interesting to see uh, if, they, if either of those would make a, a real play in that uh, that's what has been dominated recently by the Switch. Yeah, and uh, a challenging space competing against smartphones and, and tablets right. where gaming has, uh, has really uh, taken off. Uh, but the Switch, I think, is an excellent example of, you know, Sean, you alluded to it earlier, what mobility means in, in the age of, of COVID, you know, and it's maybe not so much about you know, meeting someone at a coffee shop or, or heading to a university library or, or trying to get something done in an airport, but just trying to uh, maximize time balancing work life challenges and space. <laughs> <laughs> in the home, right? Uh, yep. So that's that's what the switch actually caters beautifully to. That I mean, for a uh, for a portable device, it has a relatively large screen, uh, and it, you know it's not something you can cram in your pocket, right? It's not it's not like that. Uh, but uh, but it, it provides a a personal uh, gaming experience. I think you know when when Nintendo introduced it. Uh, they marketed it as something that could bridge that home and portable gaming experience. But I think the home gaming experience has just gone out the window. I mean, everybody uses it, seems to use it as a handheld device. So, Yeah, and, we, and we've talked a lot of, in the past about the difference between portable and mobile. And, and COVID-19 mm -hmm. definitely highlighted that uh, to, to be portable in this day and age and being able to move within the household is, is often a very good, uh, you know, option, a very good feature. It doesn't need to be mobile per se to, to fit in your pocket. Right. Uh, in other phone news this week, as we mentioned, Amazon uh, announced that they have partnered with AT&T to allow you to tie your AT&T number to Alexa devices. At the same time, we saw Google announce a new verified calls service with Android, which allows you to identify not just the business that's calling, but they can also identify the reason they are, uh, they are calling. Um, Ross, what are some of your, your early thoughts on either of these services? Of course, Amazon had already partnered with some of the carriers overseas to do this. So this is this partnership with at uh, with AT&T represents the U.S. debut of, of this feature. Hmm. Uh, the, uh, the Google verification, uh, you know, the Google has definitely had an interest in, uh, well, actually both Google and Amazon have had an interest in, in voice calls for some time, uh, Google with Google voice, and then, uh, their big AI effort in order to automate appointment, uh, scheduling for small business through the phone. 
they have uh, previously done some work around spam uh, detection using AI, and this really brings it to the next level. I, I think it's interesting that they are taking kind of an opt-in approach from businesses, but the you know, this, that's sort of the carrot, uh, but the stick is that, uh, you know, once Android users download this, this new phone app, uh, they may opt not to allow calls from businesses uh, unless the businesses identify themselves. I mean, even without this in place, I know many people uh, who just refuse to answer their phone these days if they don't uh, recognize the number because unfortunately spam and robocalling have uh, impeded the uh, the mobile experience so uh, so it's a um, uh, you know it, it, it's uh, I guess a strong pitch to small businesses it, it of course you can see how it helps Google in that uh, you know they gain a lot more data about why businesses are calling why they're calling certain consumers uh, and I think they have said that they will not collect consumer data about this, but but you can easily see how it helps them target um, ads better to the businesses, uh, ad offerings to the businesses uh, that are signing up for this. And it, of course, has consumer benefit, you know, uh, even to your point, uh, Sean, about explaining why they're calling, you know, if my bank is, uh, if, if a, a hotel, you know, is calling about um, a, a reservation opening up, uh, at a place I wanted to go, then yes, I'm, I'm interested in that. Uh, if they're calling to offer me a, a timeshare, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to accept that call. Uh, so, um, so why is, is very important and of course is often a, a holy grail uh, in analytics. So this is just uh, Google basically saying, why don't you just tell me why you're calling? So. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, it's kind of Google being an inter intermediary in this mm -hmm. market. Uh, and if you look at kind of what they were doing with, around some of the voice calls where, and even going back to, to Grand Central, I mean, that was- Yeah, well, uh, that and, became Google Voice. And that became Google Voice, of course. And, they, you know, they were playing an inter inter intermediary in this, uh, in this marketplace between a caller and a call receiver. Uh, and this is just kind of one more- uh, iteration of that. So it's, it's interesting to see um, also the importance that text and screens are playing in this world of, of calls. Right. So, um, you know, I think there's only more of that to come as we have these uh, screens connected to devices that are receiving in incoming calls. And, and yet per the Alexa device, you know, people spending a lot more time at home, uh, the Alexa smart speaker, I guess, has become the new home phone for, for many yeah. people, so it uh, it makes sense to to make that tie in. Yeah, my and my kids call me all of the time from uh, from the Alexa device. Okay, or, or they'll make uh, you know broadcast from the Alexa device. So, um, so it's interesting to see that next generation using Alexa devices as the home phone, mm -hmm. and obviously they're not using home phones the way we did when we were kids, and we would call right. friends and we would talk to friends for a long time, but they're they're using it to get information across very quickly. And so they're convenience all yeah. about convenience. Yep. Yeah. Good call. Uh, and, and just in closing a final story uh, that we mentioned, Facebook is uh, piloting a new service offering called campus. It's a section specifically designed for college students to interact with other college students. 
Uh, it's open to about 30 universities around the U.S. It's reminiscent of the early days of Facebook. You have to have your .edu email address to access this uh, particular service. It's built within the Facebook platform, so arguably it's a way of enticing this next generation to, uh, to create a Facebook account, to get on Facebook, and then to be there in all the years ahead as they share wedding photos and family photos uh, and, and, and share other pieces of that. I think it also really speaks to Facebook's desire to build these discrete communities and these, these discrete neighborhoods, if you will, uh, that really feels like uh, Facebook's future, at least they're betting a lot of their future on this ability of, of building discrete communities, uh, not without some pain, obviously, as some of those communities are into more nefarious uh, acts and, and communications, but uh, really building out these areas that are dedicated to people with, uh, with similar interests and, and similar um, identities. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very much uh, a return to their roots uh, in terms of uh, servicing college campuses. Uh, and uh, one thing I find interesting is how they kind of reconcile the core Facebook uh, account activity and this campus activity. So if, for example, you have blocked someone on Facebook uh, proper, that will extend uh, into the campus uh, community, if you will. Uh, and there are some other things that carry over from Facebook. Uh, Sean, to your point about trying to retain people after, one thing I thought was really hilarious uh, was that when uh, people graduate uh, from the schools linked to their campus, apparently they're going to get a, a message saying that they're welcome to stay, uh, but that they will likely find it less relevant uh, than uh, than they did when they were uh, you know matriculated. Uh, so uh, uh, you know it's you're, you're you're no longer cool, dude. You know time to uh, time to get off campus uh, and uh, and join the real world uh, as it were. So I, I'm surprised they don't immediately rotate you into an alumni group. You know, so you can that is surprising. Actually, yeah, that's a good idea. So I particularly because I mean I you know I'm not on Facebook these days as I recently wrote. Uh, uh, but uh, but when I was, you know, I didn't really uh, find, you know, uh, any really good alumni. Maybe, maybe that's one reason I'm no longer on there, because uh, I really couldn't find many good alumni groups uh, for my high school or college. So. Yeah, I, I think it, it also speaks just more broadly to what's happening with the Internet as as it's uh, increasingly fragmented and, and bifurcated into these these groups. I mean, you think about something like uh, Yahoo in the early days of the internet, which was about broadcasting relevant information to the masses, right? It was stock quotes, it was sports right. scores, it was kind of broadcasting this information. And then increasingly we see that people are, are self-selecting into small groups and, and segments of groups. And obviously some of these groups are very large, but, uh, but they share similar interests. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I would expect to see more of of this type of approach from Facebook as they try to remain relevant to as many people as they can, but focused on the the small you know group. And when I say small group, I mean defined characteristics and and identifiable characteristics, as opposed to just broad broadcasting of of information. 
so we'll, we'll likely see more from not just Facebook, but others as they try to, uh, to address the, the unique needs of, of groups and individuals. Uh, that's probably a good place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Thanks again for tuning in. I am Sean Dubrovac, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. <laughs>